Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions people have about meditation practice and practical Buddhism. So practical Buddhism is the topic of a, a book I wrote a long time ago. And the book isn't anything particular, but I was asked why did I choose that for the title of the book. And um, it was a little bit of criticism about the title of the book. So I bring this up because I want to explain what I mean by practical Buddhism. You'll see many questions about Buddhism are theoretical in nature, meaning people ask them because they're curious or uh, because they're thinking about the topic. They're wondering, uh, maybe because they have doubt about something. Now, doubt about something is a valid reason to ask a question. Uh, and if it's a pertinent question, then it can really get in the way of your practice if you have doubt about something. So we're not just um, open to questions that are directly related to your practice. But on the other hand, there are some doubts that are about things that are not relevant. And this you'll see actually discussed in the suttas. There is a monk who said to the Buddha, you know, look, you haven't answered these questions about what happens to an enlightened being when they die, or is the world finite, or uh, all of these sort of, you know, what are the word, metaphysical questions or something, questions of ultimate concern. Uh, and the Buddha said, look, did I ever tell you that I was going to answer these questions? Come and become a monk and I'll tell you the answer to these questions. He's like, well, no. Look, these questions are not useful. These questions are like a person who has been struck by a poisonous arrow. And then they say, look, I'm not going to uh, pull this arrow out until you tell me who shot it and what kind of a bow it was shot from and where it was shot from and all these sorts of things. The person would die before they pulled the arrow out. So those sorts of questions we're not interested in. And we might tell you that, that, well, we'll at least put them on a lower tier. What we're really looking for is questions that have, not of ultimate concern, but questions of concern to you. Are they going to have an impact on your life? Is this question really important in your life that an answer will actually help you? Or is it something about the core teachings of the Buddha that you're doubting, and that doubt is preventing you from applying yourself? And again, in some cases, it just means you're letting go of the question. And if you, if, you, if you ask yourself, can I let go of this question? And the answer is no, that, well, really this question is important. And it, it, if I don't get an answer to it, it's really going to hinder my practice because I need to know the answer. I consider that as important. But our main focus is questions about your own life and practice. So we take the first 15 minutes to do a brief meditation. It's just a chance to collect some questions and just sort of to clear everyone's mind so that we're in the right frame of mind when we're, when we're asking the questions and uh, when we're listening to the answers. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour. That's 10 minutes from now. And we'll start to ask questions then. At any time in the chat.
Okay, we're back. So from here on, we'd ask that the chat be limited to questions only. Anything else, we may very well just delete it. Not because we don't like it, but just as a rule to keep the chat clean and questions only. Ubuntu, we do have questions. How can I note thoughts that lead me to more confusion during the meditation and correct them later or use wisdom to learn from them? If I just keep noting, do I not get any new insights for myself? Okay, well, there's, I guess, a couple of things here. The first is thoughts don't lead to confusion. It's important that you're clear about what's happening there, that the confusion is optional. It's just a habit of the mind to get confused. Uh, the thoughts themselves are just thoughts. So when you're thinking, you can just say thinking, thinking. But if you're confused, you shouldn't say thinking. You should instead, instead say confused, confused. But the other part of it here is understanding what wisdom and insight is. Um, insights, the way you're using that word, are not really the core point in Buddhism. It's not really what wisdom is about. Wisdom, the word for wisdom in Pali is panya. Nya means knowledge or in regards to knowing. But the pa part means like a a true or a strong or a, a, a perfect, like a real knowing. And it's generally used to refer to direct experience or direct contact through actually seeing for yourself, which isn't the same as having an insight like, aha, and then a thought that has some meaning to it. Thoughts are not equivalent to wisdom. If you have insightful thoughts, that's generally a good sign that your wisdom has improved, but they are not to be confused. It's easy to get attached to the quote-unquote insights that come from seeing more clearly, and then you're no longer doing the practice that leads you to see clearly. So no, thoughts are not something that leads to wisdom. Thinking about them is not going to make you more wise. Wisdom is really just about seeing clearly, and if something is is making you giving causing you to give rise to confusion then it's a sign that you're not seeing clearly and so if you note to yourself confused the wisdom that will come is you'll see more clearly this state of being confused and how useless it is how how it's a sign of a mind that is reactionary and uh, uh, deluded a mind that is not seeing things just as they are because when you make more of something then it leads to room for confusion there's nothing about a thought to be confused if you see it just as a thought because it's quite clear oh yes this is a thought what is there to be confused about right but once you get into the content of the thought and the ideas in the thought the possibilities are limitless and therefore there's ample room for confusion and and the unsurprising likelihood of getting confused when you get lost in concepts and ideas and that sort of thing. So just to suggest that you focus more on the actual noting of confusion and try to understand that wisdom has nothing to do with thoughts. Wisdom has to do with seeing, which is why we call it vipassana, seeing clearly. How do I get rid of lust? The hardest attachment for me to get rid of is sex. I'm trying to be celibate, but it's very hard because of how over-sexualized society is and societal pressure, etc. It's a hard one. Greed in general seems to have, take a place of being the um, key, the, the cornerstone of our... Uh, our 
problem or the issue, the thing that keeps us in samsara. Anger, no, not really. Even delusion is is sort of given a a secondary role, and to some extent, um, the attachment is and and greed is is the sort of the hard one. And I don't know whether that's actually fair to say because delusion is the worst. Delusion is the key. And so that can be part of the answer here is that the key is not to uh, try to get rid of lust, actually. The key is to try to get rid of delusion. But to some extent, even as you're getting rid of layers and layers of delusion, you have to appreciate that lust is the challenging one. Meaning that even as you you got get rid of illusion, why am I still lustful? Why am I still greedy? Why do I still want things? There's um in the uh, uh, in in the Anguttara Nikaya, I think, where the Buddha says, "Sadasa sadasato ajatang susamahito apamado So, what is it that makes a person apamada? Apamada being the Buddha's last words when he said, "Apamadena sambadeta." So, strive on to attain apamada. Pamada is a word, mud the root in regards to being intoxicated. Uh, mud, something like mentally intoxicated or, or just um, deluded, basically, or, or uh, with an unclear mind, with a mind that is negligent is the sort of word that they use to describe it. But what does it mean to be not negligent? The Buddha said four things. Abhyapano, to not be angry or ill will, have ill will towards others. But basically not to be angry. Sadasato, to be always mindful. Mindfulness is always the cornerstone. In fact, um, another place the Buddha said, Satya vipavasa apamadoti uchati. One one is uh, not with not ever without sati. This is what apamada is. So apamada, the the cornerstone of Buddhism of the Buddhist teaching, the last thing he said before he passed away, is just sati. So sada sato to be always mindful. Uh, Ajatang susamahito to be internally composed. So this is the tranquility portion. Your mind has to be focused. Your mind has to be settled, and that involves getting rid of the hindrances and that sort of thing. But the final one is abhijja vinaye sikang. Sikang to train, to uh, give up or to come out of abhijja, which is uh, lust or desire, or literally desire or greed. But putting it that way is interesting because it, it's the only one the Buddha, as opposed to anger, the Buddha says, just don't be angry, basically. But as far as attachment, he says, work to slowly, slowly do away with it. And this is can be seen as meaningful in, in the sense that it is something you have to gradually get over. So that's a little bit of a long answer to your question. But the brief answer, I think, goes back to focusing more on delusion. I think this work, this is important with anger and greed, to not focus on destroying the lust or getting rid of it. Focus on trying to see it clearly. I mean, it really is the essence of mindfulness practice to face things and to see them just as experiences rather than problems. So your whole question is wrong. I mean, it's, of course, these are the questions that everyone asks. But anytime anyone asks, how do I get rid of? How do I change? How do I fix? You're, you're not in line with... So mindfulness offers a different way, a different perspective. And the suggestion is to try and look at it instead of as a problem, but as a object of study. Try to understand your lust. And the power, why that is powerful and, and actually even more effective than any method to try to get rid of something is because understanding, because lust is bad for you. It, it intrinsically, inherently is bad. Now, we say, how can I get rid of it? Because we think it's bad, but we don't know that. When something is intrinsically bad, 
The great thing about that is that means if you saw it perfectly clearly, if you understood it for what it is, you would never engage in it. And that's the power of mindfulness. That's why it works, because it's the nature of reality that things that are bad are only possible because you don't understand them. I mean, it's logical, right? If if you knew to your core that something was bad, you actually just wouldn't physically be even able to give rise to it or mentally capable of giving rise to it, literally uh, be able to give rise to it. So that doesn't perhaps help so, so directly in terms of you trying to be celibate because it may be that you fail. It sounds like you fail at being celibate. But whether you fail or succeed, the only way that's really going to work in the long term is to face it and to learn to study it and to understand it. And that if you really, uh, a direct answer to your question, if you are intent on being celibate, the best way is to undertake intensive practice of mindfulness because it is something that can be attained here and now. You can give it up if you do the work, if you're diligent, if you're capable, if you're dedicated and you, know, you have a competent teacher and a competent tradition, competent technique. Um, it's certainly doable, but it means not just saying, I want to get rid of it, how do I get rid of it, and, and not putting in the work. You really need probably intensive meditation practice, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, and do that for a month or so. That makes celibacy much more feasible. Otherwise, you have to understand it's a long-term thing. Slowly, slowly work your way. As you have less delusion, then there's less opportunity for greed to arise over time. Sometimes while working, I get distracted by the hindrance of dullness. I note the tiredness, but it takes over, and sometimes I'm forced to listen to music to gain energy. How do I deal with this? Well, you can look at what it is about energy that gives you what, about music that give, what it is about music that gives you energy. Chanting is a good replacement I found for uh, music. So you know how when people are driving late at night, they start singing along to the radio. So when I started meditating, I found that meditation actually sometimes, at, when I was driving, put me in a dangerous position. Being too mindful um, could sometimes allow the, the drowsiness to take hold. And so I didn't want to sing or listen to music, but in, this is before I was a monk. I, started, I would chant uh, in, in the car. And I found that helped quite a, quite a bit. So you might consider that as an option. There's lots of ways to overcome drowsiness. Sometimes it's it's not something you can just force away um, while you're working. Yeah, your options are limited, but uh, splashing water on your face, even sometimes just drinking a lot of water. Stretching, taking a deep breath, going outside, that sort of thing. So it depends what kind of work you're doing. But uh, figure out what it is about listening to music that helps you. It's more like a sh this is more like a short-term problem. It's a kind of an imbalance in the mind. And if you become more skilled in mindfulness, you should find that your mind is a lot sharper, a lot stronger and you're much less prone to these imbalances that overwhelm you. I find the thought of meditation boring. I understand the benefits, but the resistance behind the thought of its boringness often prevents me from practicing on my own. How can I overcome this? So this is one of those questions in disguise. How can I overcome something? Um... I mean, this is, they're all reasonable questions, but just to show that you kind of have to change your perspective, um, the resistance isn't a problem. And this is, this is, this question you're asking, and we get, we get this a lot, but we get this question a lot, but uh, it's also a, a key 
uh, problem that meditators face, whether they ask the question or not. How do I overcome this resistance? And the answer is you don't. You take the resistance as an object of meditation. I find the thought of meditation boring. Um, is kind of, I mean, it, it's absolutely that's a great way of saying it, or that's a valid way of saying it, but it's not a great way of saying it. A, a better way of saying it is, at the thought of meditation, boredom arises in my mind, or aversion rises in my mind, resistance, you could say. But even resistance is kind of a euphemism for disliking aversion. And that's what you have to do, is you have to, you have to be a little more um, precise about what's actually happening. The meditation cannot be boring. Boring is a pretty bad word because it says the thing is that something is um, angering, if you were to say, right? Or something is desire. No, what is the word? Like um, attractive. Things cannot be attracted. Attraction arises in the mind. Liking arises in the mind. Wanting arises in the mind. So in this case, aversion arises in the mind. And there is no connection between the thing that you're averse towards. There never is a connection between the thing you're averse towards and the aversion. There's no quality of the thing that is uh, that creates the aversion. The aversion is all on you. And, and that's not an indictment at all. That's just a much more precise way of putting it. And it's powerful because it helps you separate the two. It helps you see, you see and overcome the true problem and that is your aversion so again don't take it as a problem take it as an object just say to yourself disliking disliking and suddenly wow you're meditating <laughs> you know i can't meditate i'm too bo i'm too bored of meditating right or i'm too averse to meditating meditate on the aversion and then wow no problem anymore suddenly i'm meditating on the aversion Sometimes I get thoughts about important stuff from daily life, and I make decisions during meditation, and they are really important. Even if I note, I go back to making decisions. What should I do? Yeah, you should um, try to remind yourself that you have... Uh, put aside a specific amount of time during the day for meditation and you have to square that away with the, the with your life you have to determine whether meditation really is preventing you from making these decisions or whether they could just as easily be made whether you have time to make them after you meditate and um, i mean the answer usually should be yes you could just put them off until after you meditate and therefore you can write them down you know take a pad of paper out and write them down so you don't forget about them but then make a determination to yourself that you've put this time aside to being mindful another thing you can do is is learn about um, and and become curious about the state of mind that tells you that they're important the state of mind that tells you that it's urgent because that's a sort of a greed and attachment mind state a, a, a desire or it can be a uh, d deluded mind where you have this view or belief I mean, that's more likely i guess that you have a view or belief and it's just a view or belief and you can attack that no but there's so quite often a, a, a desire a liking you like solving problems you you crave the solution it's addictive to to solve your problems you can also be worried or afraid of things and all of those those are all very interesting and very important it's something that you really have to work on over the long term. You can't prevent yourself from getting distracted during meditation. If you really want to uh, overcome these, you can undertake intensive meditation. It's a thing that meditators often deal with when they first come to practice. They've come and they haven't sorted out all their affairs, and so they spend the first few days uh, really distracted by things at home, uh, and they just can't put them aside. But after a few days, once they start to realize a little more clearly about these things that that this is just their own mind playing tricks on them convincing them that they have to think about these things when in fact they really don't and they've start to realize that this is just an aspect of their life that generally causes more suffering than 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 good 
uh, that they start to change their perspective on life. Instead of trying to figure things out, uh, they start to try to see things more clearly. You know, problem solving is very, very mundane and worldly. And you, you, so mindfulness isn't just about getting better at solving life's problems. It's about having fewer problems because you see them differently. You change the way you look at the world rather than trying to fix all of life's problems. You try to have a better perspective on all the things that you used to think were problems. In meditation, sometimes I am angry and then angry that I am angry. How can one let go or overcome anger or sadness like this? By seeing the three characteristics? When wanting something, is it important why? That last question, I don't understand how it relates to the rest. It was going so well, but then you got to this last question, I don't understand it. How can one let go? When wanting something, is it important? Why? What does that have to do with the rest of that? Okay, I'm going to ask, answer these independently because I don't see the connection. Chris, am I missing something here? What's that last part about? So that was included in the question, Bhante. But do you see a connection? No, they may be a person with two questions. Okay, let's put it that way, that it's two questions. Um, so again, these sorts of questions, how can I let go... So first of all, this is a this is a funny one because it's pretty clear. And correct me; you can correct me in your mind if you're if I'm wrong. But um, it's pretty clear that you don't mean let go; you mean get rid of. And so this is a common thing. How do I let go of something? And what you mean is, how do I get rid of this thing? But the thing about letting go is, it means also letting come. It means not reacting. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, it, it's it's fine. How can I let go is is okay. Just to be, let's just say, put it this way, be clear that by let go doesn't mean not get angry. It means not get angry that you're angry, right? Which is kind of what you're saying, so no problem there. Um, but the other part kind of leads me to think there might be an issue here because you say overcome anger, because overcome is not the point of it. Uh, and again, this is just a natural question that shows kind of how we tend to look at things wrong, and reasonably so. Everyone looks at things this way. How do I get rid of this problem that I have? And this is the thing about mindfulness, is it proposes a different way of looking at it. So again, rather than trying to let go of the anger, yeah, rather than trying to even let go of the anger, let alone overcome it, try to see the anger clearly. Try to even see the anger at the anger clearly. Try to see that you just get angry at getting angry at getting angry. And you're kind of crazy in that way. Not you, but your mind is uh, doing its own thing. This isn't logical. This isn't reasonable. Try and see that very clearly. And then nothing else. There is no and then what? That's it. When you truly see clearly, you're, the, the results will be uh, inevitable you'll change. The letting go will come about. You will be less angry. You'll be less reactionary. And part of why you will be less angry and reactionary is because seeing clearly involves seeing the three characteristics. Now, why is seeing the three characteristics so important? Because ask yourself, why do you get angry? Do you get angry because you see that something is going to change anyway? No, you get angry because you see the thing as there, as real, like maybe it's a person, and you see them as bad. Maybe they say something, and then you resent that person all the time, and you don't realize that that thing that you resent is already gone, because you, you conflate it with a person. You see it as a thing that's persisting. This thing, i.e. this person, is still there. But no, the thing that that person did is gone. The reality of it is already gone. Just as a very simple example, in general, impermanence makes you less angry. You see that things are not worth getting angry about. They don't have any essence to them. Disliking a thing is always going to be disliking a conceptual thing because reality is just momentary. Um, 
it's going to come about not because you see that there's no satisfaction in things, but because you think that you can find satisfaction. You see certain things as satisfying and you don't have them or something's in your way of getting them, and so you get angry. If you saw that nothing is satisfying and there was no fix to things, you couldn't fix things to make them always the way you want, then you wouldn't get angry. And non-self, the third one. We don't get angry because we see things as not self. We get angry because we say, I can fix this and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to say something about it. We get angry because of a sense that things are under our control. We get angry when things are in the way of us getting being in control, when the control isn't working. We get angry at non-self. Right? We get angry. We do get angry because we see non-self, but only because we think it should be self. Things are not under our control. Why are these not under my control? Because we think they should be under, because we think we have control, that control is possible. But when you see non-self, you don't get angry. You also don't get greedy for the very, for very similar reasons. But, okay, the next part, when wanting something, is it important? Why? I really just don't get the question. Um, no, it's not important. Why? When wanting, you should not wanting, wanting. How can I let go of obsessive thinking about a person who rejected me? I feel addicted and my energy goes there during meditation. How can I label it? Um, okay, obsessive thinking... Again, this idea of letting go, don't ask that question. I mean, okay, everyone asks it, but it's fine that you ask it, but I'm always going to say, again, you have to change your perspective. Instead of trying to let go of it, try to understand it. So the question, how do I label it? That's the valid one. That's great. It's great that you're asking that. Um, so let's look at this. Obsessive thinking doesn't yet tell us the form of the obsession. Obsessive just indicates um, repetitive and perhaps intense. It, it indicates intensity and repetition. It doesn't indicate which sort of feeling. Uh, and it's a feeling. So thinking, okay, let's separate this, because repetitive thinking cannot have an intensity to it. The thoughts can't really have their own intensity. They're just thoughts, okay? So as for repetitive thinking, don't be concerned with with that. That isn't an issue, and seeing that that isn't an issue is important. Be okay with noting, thinking, thinking ad nauseum. Don't have any need for that to go away. What is uh, problematic is the feeling or the emotion let's say not the feeling but the emotion so that that leads to repetitive thinking but also leads to stress and suffering so uh, you you mention addiction but there's probably both addiction is usually both greed and aversion so you want things but you also hate the fact that you can't get things when a person rejected you you're not likely just going to experience greed. You're going to experience a lot of aversion in the form of sadness, in the form of frustration, in the form of depression, even in the form of anger, self-hatred, all of these things. So those are real in a way that obsession isn't. Obsession is, again, just a way of describing the qualities of the feeling, not which feeling it is, what emotion, not which emotion it is. So you would have to just note aversion and uh, wanting, liking, even if you think of something and you like the thought. And instead of trying to let go, even of those problematic things, again, just try to see them clearly, try to understand them. And that should help you find the labels. It's usually going to be liking or disliking. And it can be other things as well. Well, fear, fear of being alone, worry about what you did or what you said. Uh, can be doubt, doubt about what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing. The hindrances, they're pretty big. You can also note physical sensations that are caused by all the mental sensations. There's going to be pain. You might get headaches. You might feel tension in the body. Uh, you might feel tired from all this obsession, that sort of thing. And you should note all that as well.
If not in the mind, where do we note the rising and falling of the breath? In the abdomen. We're not noting the rising and falling of the breath, we're noting the rising and falling of the abdomen. And then that's just an English term. It's actually the expansion and the contraction of the, of the stomach or the tensing and the releasing of the muscles, in fact. All I can do is 10 minutes per day, five walk, five sit. I made a resolution of it, and I am sticking to this to build the habit. I try to never skip, but it's still tough many times. Is it okay for the moment? It's not a lot. Um, one moment of mindfulness is far, far, I mean, it's not even far, far better. One moment of mindfulness is an incredible thing. So it doesn't, in fact, matter how many minutes you do. It's just that the more minutes you do, the more opportunity there is for moments of mindfulness to arise. You can walk and sit for hours a day and get no benefit if you're not actually mindful for any of the moments during those hours. And that's how it's always going to be. You can't say you meditated for an hour. You didn't, unless you're enlightened. You maybe had you know, a, a portion of that or moments of mindfulness. So the biggest problem with that is you're not giving yourself much time for the arising of moments but again as i said one moment of mindfulness is an incredible thing and a bigger question for you then would be how many moments when you're not doing formal practice throughout the day are you mindful you might find that doing informal meditation like when you walk anywhere saying to yourself walking walking might encourage you to do more formal meditation to give yourself a better opportunity to be mindful. I mean, it'll help you sort out your life and figure out why it is you're only able to do 10 minutes out of 24 hours. How many minutes are there in the day? Uh, 24 times 24 times 60 is 240 times 6 is 1. It's 1,440, isn't it? Something like that? No, wait. All right, 24, 1, 1,560? No, 1,000, yeah, 1,440. There's 1,440 minutes, so you're taking very few minutes out of your day. You have to subtract about um, 240 minutes. No, wait a second. 60 times 6 hours, so you have the 360 or more for sleeping. So let's say you got about a thousand minutes in your waking day, and then you take off how many minutes for meals, how many minutes for chores, how many minutes for socializing, don't socialize too much, how much for entertainment, don't have too much entertainment in your day. And if you can't find two hours, let's say, 120 minutes a day to meditate, then you're Pretty in pretty desperate situation, but okay. Putting aside two hours a day, that's people will balk at at 120 minutes, 60 minutes a day, 60 out of 1,440. That's a very still a very low percentage. So you have the time. What I would probably recommend in this case is to try and do it twice a day, and then just slowly increase until you're doing at least an hour a day. I would say an hour a day is a good easy minimum for anyone you know if you can do two hours a day that's starting to sound pretty uh impressive i mean if you're working in the world and so on but an hour a day i, I don't it's hard to imagine anyone can't can't fit that in we we, we can't people aren't able to but that's because there's generally because there's an issue and and you just gotta pull yourself up and uh, and do what's do do what's important change your priorities i guess is is generally what it comes down to if you can't find 60 minutes in a day to meditate you might have to change your priorities cuz you're going to die soon in the next 100 years you'll be dead
And if you waste this precious life without even doing that much, you'll regret it. But again, moments, not hours. Should we practice reflection about Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha? Is it helpful? It is helpful. Um, I would say make it proportionate to your more core Buddhist practice because it's not the core Buddhist practice that the Buddha recommended. It's pretty clear that it has a place. And what you have to understand about a lot of different practices is that they have a place, they have a purpose, but most of them are not core meaning the place they have is going to be secondary or even tertiary. Things like charity. Some people just disregard charity or generosity or kindness. And that's, that's bad. These things have a place, but they are not core. If that is your Buddhist practice, you're missing something. So, so it's not an either-or. This is another example. Some people just throw out the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, reflecting on the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. That's not a core practice. Why would I ever do that? Don't do that. Put it in its place. Is it helpful? Should you? Um, yes, I think you should. I, I, I guess I would say you should if you're the sort of person who, who wants to, who, who appreciates those things. And I guess that makes pretty much everyone who practices. But for some people, it's a bit of a, um, a bit of a point of contention. They don't like the religious aspects of things, right? And so this is what it sounds like and doesn't really strike them immediately. So I wouldn't recommend to everyone who's looking into mindfulness practice to take up reflecting the Buddha Dhamma Sangha because it they might not appreciate it in the beginning, but I would say that's more of a beginner thing. And in the long term, yes, everyone really should take time out of their day to do a little bit of reflection, even just a few moments of bowing down to a Buddha statue. Uh, in, in, I mean, now I'm getting really religious about it, bowing down, as I think a lot of people are kind of wary about that, but they shouldn't be. I, I bow down to the Buddha, the Dhamma Sangha. I think that's the way to go. But again, it's um, put it in its place. It's never going to lead you to enlightenment, not directly. But it'll be very supportive of it. These are three things that are worthy of your reflection, also worthy of your reverence and appreciation. So things that are worthy of appreciation should be appreciated. I've communicated some thoughtless, stress-induced thoughts to some business partners and I fear it has affected their respect for me. I feel ashamed. How can I overcome this? Well, feeling ashamed isn't helpful. It's helpful that you realize that, but in the long term, you have to appreciate that you're better off not getting ashamed and just changing. Change doesn't require shame. In fact, shame can often cripple you. Um, because what we call shame is the aversion, the disliking of it, uh, the fear also, things like fear. What you have to appreciate is that everything is impermanent, even people, and you can change and you can move past. And you have to appreciate that what you have done is considered karma. Most likely it was ethical karma, it was actual karma. You did something that is going to have bad results, right? If it was thoughtless, stress-induced, that sort of thing, and you you acted based on uh, unwholesome states of mind, then it's going to have results. But don't let those cripple you. You appreciate that that's a fact, and you move on. And the next time you see those people, and suppose they yell at you or get angry about you at you or criticize you, you accept that this is the consequence of your bad karma, and you uh, move on. You do your best to make sure it doesn't come again, but you let go of it. You, you see the end of those bad deeds. That was the end. They are done. It was inevitable. I cannot prevent and should not try to prevent the consequences. If you're constantly trying to only 
find good consequences and avoid bad consequences, you're never going to let go. You're always going to be greedy and attached to your own pleasure because that's ultimately what it is. I don't want to experience the fallout of my bad actions. This is not what Buddhism is about. This is not why the Buddha taught karma. He taught it to, for us to be responsible, accept responsibility, and understand that things have limits, that they're impermanent, that this is the end. This consequence is the end of that karma. It's over. It's done. And you move on. And if you're a better person by the time the consequences come about, you don't have to worry because they're not going to come out, come about again. If you learn and if you change, this is what is the correct understanding of karma is to understand that things have an end. Karma has a result that doesn't make it a boogeyman, that actually makes it quite uh, workable. Okay, that's it. It's done. And we can move on. You can apologize or not apologize. You can just be sure that you move on. You accept that this is the consequence. And hopefully you don't make the same mistake again. I mean, if you're mindful, that's the point, is you're learning from your mistakes. You're learning by seeing clearly. Sometimes I get very tired, and it becomes hard to do sitting meditation. Should I switch to lying meditation, or just label tired? And is there any way to avoid sleeping during lying meditation? Well, it, it, there's different levels of this. If it's feasible, you instead stand up and maybe do walking meditation or even standing meditation. You don't lie down and do lying meditation. But if it's really overwhelming, you lie down and you try to stay awake and you do lying meditation. And if you fall asleep, you accept that that's just the inevitable nature of it. And so, yes, there is sometimes no way to avoid it, but there is often a way to avoid moderate fatigue by instead standing up and doing walking or even standing you can close your eyes standing and say rising falling when you're doing standing meditation is there a concept of an eternal self in buddhism or is that impermanent like everything else there is no concept of an eternal self in theravada buddhism there's not even a concept of an impermanent self. All that's, um, all that's postulated in Buddhism is experience, because experience is that which is directly uh, experienceable, I mean verifiable. Anything else outside of the realm of experience is, by its very nature, not real. By its very nature, not verifiable, and therefore categorized as unreal even the physical body is unreal what is real is the experiences that when put together allow us to postulate the experience of a body the body itself is not real likewise the mind all that's real is the experiences which involve physical and mental aspects I might get invited in front of a class of teenage pupils to introduce Buddhism. What could I talk about to make this fruitful? I am familiar with Buddhist concepts and have done the at-home course. Why don't I see this? Oh, it stopped. Uh, well, I would recommend you consider coming. This was maybe a good segue into bringing up our mentorship program that we've talked about before. But uh, anyone who's interested in being this sort of person who spreads the good word, you know, uh, becomes a sort of a mindful missionary of sorts. But we call mentorship, meaning you're not a teacher, but you can be considered a mentor because you know something that other people don't, and therefore you can introduce them to it. Ambassador, maybe, but I don't really like that word. So uh, we have this group that meets the first Sunday of every month at 8 a.m. Eastern Time and uh, talks about these sorts of things. Uh, I have to go now, so I'm going to not answer this question. I get, okay, so I, no, I'll give a brief answer. 
um, if you, I don't know if you've done the at-home course, then uh, whatever's in the booklet, try to introduce them to the concepts that are in the booklet. That would be my recommendation. There's nothing, you know, just Buddhism is not very useful. Teach them how to watch their stomach rise and fall and explain to them why that's valuable. That's a real challenge. Okay, thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we have Edit, Jim, uh, for your help. Uh, good questions. Thank you all. Have a good week. Sadhu. Peace.